0: All right. Well, let's uh, pray, and then we'll start. And I think our goal every every month will be just to do. These are broken up into Lord's Day sections, you know. So Lord's Day one, so we'll do Lord's Day one this month, and then we'll move into Lord's Day two next month. And we'll just go with that approach, okay? So let's pray, and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time to be together today. Lord, to study your word, and Lord, I do thank you for these men and for the boys who are here, and Lord, we do pray that you would, Lord, establish us in our faith, Lord, help us to to know your word and to be faithful to you, Lord, to lead our homes and to lead this church, Lord, in a way that is uh, righteous and consistent with your word. Lord, we do thank you for uh, those who have gone before us, Lord, those who uh, Men that you have raised up in past generations, Lord, to establish the truth and to help us, Lord, by uh, thinking through so many issues and providing tools and resources, Lord, for us to use for many generations that uh, can give us a a good foundation of doctrine and understanding. Uh, So, Lord, we thank you for that, and we do pray for your blessing to be upon us today. As we open up your word, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, I'll just remind you that anytime we've used these kinds of documents, uh, whether it's a catechism or a confession, you know, the benefit of those things are, are only true insofar as they get us into the Bible, right? So we should not rely on these man made or these human documents as the primary source. But they can be beneficial as a springboard to get into the Bible. Uh, And they are useful to us only insofar as what they state or what they are teaching is actually consistent with the Word of God, right? With the Word of God. So that always has to be our attitude when approaching these types of things, right? Not uh, relying on men. We have to rely on the Bible. But we also need to understand that there is a history of interpretation, And that there are those who have gone before us and have handed down the faith to us from generation to generation to generation so that in every generation, the church is not formulating the doctrines of the Bible in a vacuum independently by themselves, right? We're not doing that, but rather it's handed down to us from faithful men from former generations. That's the key. It has to be faithful men. Now, if what they're teaching is unfaithful, then it's not good, right, to receive those things that are contrary to the truth. And that's why the most important aspect of any of these confessions or catechisms are the scripture references at the bottom, right? And insofar as those references prove and justify the statement, then we should receive the statement, and the statement can be beneficial to us. Uh, And it's helpful because it gives us a short summary of what the Bible teaches concerning this topic. Okay, So that's been our approach in the past when we went to the 1689 Second London Confession, and that will be our approach as we go through this Heidelberg Catechism as well. Okay, So let's read the first question, and then we'll look up these scripture references. The first question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Here, this first question is dealing with the comfort of believers in this present life. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And this really fits in well with what we've been dealing with on Sunday mornings in terms of entering into the rest of Christ. Right, Because in our natural state, because of sin, we don't have comfort. Right, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. But rather, there is guilt, there is fear, there is condemnation that is upon us. And so it is asking this question of how is it that a man can go from a state of enmity, a state of fear and judgment with God, to a place of comfort and peace with God? And here it's providing that because... In this life, right, in our sojourning here, we do need to have comfort. We do need to have hope, right, that we are children of God and that God cares for us, that God loves us, and that all of our sins have been forgiven. And that is what the focus of this first question is. What is the source of hope and comfort for sinful men in this present world? And here the source is that we belong to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that he has done everything necessary to secure our redemption, our eternal salvation, and that he watches over and preserves and protects us in such a way that not only will our soul not perish, but not even a single hair from our head can fall to the ground apart from his will. That we, body and soul, belong to him, that we are entrusted into his care, and that he will never make a mistake. He will never fail to love us. He will never fail to care for his own people. And this is our comfort in this life. This is the ultimate supreme source of comfort for any man. This is a comfort that riches cannot provide. The pleasures of this world cannot provide. Security cannot provide. Good health cannot provide. Because all of those things are passing away. But this comfort is one that is both for this life but also it passes into the life to come, that we belong to Christ. And this should be the focus of our hope and our comfort in this present life. So let's read back through this and then we'll look up these verses and make some comments here and there. First, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. Here, I am not my own, right? I do not belong to myself, but rather, I belong to Christ. He has purchased me, he has bought me, and I am his, and he is mine. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. 1 Corinthians 6, let's pick up in verse 18. Because the context here, though they are using it in the true sense, the context here is why we ought to be obedient to Christ, right? Why we should obey Christ. He says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Again, here, the focus of this passage is on the necessity and the expectation that the believer, the Christian, lives a godly life and that he flees immorality. And the reason why he ought to do this is because his body and his whole life does not belong to himself. We are not our own. right? And in terms of a Christian, this is true on a twofold state or on a twofold stance. First, we are not our own because we did not create ourselves. Who is the creator of all men? God is, right? God created us. So in terms of creation, we belong to God. He does not belong to us. That means God has the right to tell us what to do, to tell us how to live, and that we are expected to live our life for his glory, right? And that is true in terms of creation. But here it's also true in terms of redemption, right? In our sinful state, right, we do not live... Under the rule of God. But we live as rebels against God, though he is our gracious creator. But in redemption, that enmity is taken away, and now we are brought near to God. We have been bought by the blood of Christ. We've been redeemed by him in terms of our spiritual being, redeemed from sin. So how should we live now because of that? We should live a godly life. We should flee immorality and the sins of the body. But here, the basis is because you are not your own. You do not belong to yourself, but rather you belong to Christ with a twofold bond, both as your creator and as your redeemer. And this also is a source of comfort for us in this life, that we are not our own, but we belong to Christ. He is our good shepherd and we are the sheep of his fold. And he has a rightful claim upon us that no one else has only Christ and Christ cares for his own people. He watches over his sheep. He doesn't berate them. He doesn't harass them. He doesn't, uh, he's not malicious toward them. He loves them and he cares for his own people. Next Romans 14, Romans 14, seven to nine Romans 14 verses seven to nine here that this is proving that we belong both body and soul to christ in life and in death romans 14 verse 7 for not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself for if we live we live for the lord or if we die we die for the lord therefore whether we live or die we are the lord's for this end christ died and lived again that he might be lord both of the dead And of the living. So whether we live, who do we belong to? We belong to the Lord, right? We are owned by him. So we should live for the Lord. And then if we die, who do we belong to in death? We belong to the Lord. So that whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And this is why Christ died and lived again. That he might be Lord over us both in this life and also in the life to come. Through his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. So, whether we are alive or whether we are dead, and our body is here and our spirit goes to be with the Lord, whatever the situation is, or at the second coming of Christ, when He resurrects us and glorifies us, the believer belongs to Christ, both body and soul, in this life and the life to come. Therefore, we should live for Him. But also, we should take comfort in that, take great comfort in knowing. That we belong to the Lord in life and in death, no matter what. We are his possession. Then 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 23. 1 Corinthians 3, let's pick up in verse 21. It says, so then let no one boast in men. For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Here he is confronting the Corinthians because they are taking their hope in men, attaching themselves to men, taking great pride in their attachment to certain important figures, whether that be Apollos, whether that be Cephas, whether that be Paul, right? This is what they are doing. They are saying that I belong to this one. I belong to that one. But the apostle here is correcting them and showing that it's not your attachment to men that is of most importance, right? Though in a sense, there's nothing wrong with being associated with godly men. There's nothing wrong with them being associated with the apostle Paul or with Peter or with Apollos because those were true servants of God. But where should our primary focus be upon? What should be the source of our pride and of our boasting? Not that I was taught by Paul or not that I was evangelized by Peter or not that I was baptized by Apollos, right? That is not the ultimate source of our pride and strength. The ultimate source is that I belong to who? I belong to Christ Jesus. I am his, right? And he belongs to God. Therefore, all of these things belong to me because I belong to Christ. I am his and I am his precious possession. Titus chapter 2. Titus 2. And verse 14. Titus 2. Let's pick up in verse 13. It says, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Here he tells them that we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? The ultimate goal and the ultimate hope of the believer is to be like Christ, to be transformed into his likeness. And that will take place when we see him as he is, when the Lord comes back, when he returns for us. And the reason that will happen, the reason that we will be with him and that we will be made like him is because he, the Lord Jesus, gave himself for us, He gave His life, He sacrificed His life for us, for our benefit, in order to redeem us from all of our lawless deeds. All of the sins that we have, Christ gave His life, He shed His blood on the cross in order to redeem us from all of our sinful deeds and to take away the guilt of sin and the judgment of God that was against us because of all our sins. And then, ultimately, to purify us, to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. We belong to Him, and is Christ Himself our Master and our Lord? Is He pure or impure? Is He holy or unholy? Is He a righteous Master or an unrighteous Master? Well, He is righteous. He is pure. He is holy. He is the head, right, of the church. He is the husband. We are the body. We are the bride. He is the master. We are the slave or the people. Well, if the master is righteous, if the master is pure, then what should be true of the people? If the husband is holy, then what should be true of the people? Well, they ought to be like him as well. And that is what he is doing. He is purifying us, purifying a people for his own possession. Because it is unfitting and unbecoming of Christ to have a bride that is not pure that is stained with sin. Now, the means of the accomplishment of this is his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. That is what purifies us from all ungodliness, which begins at our conversion, right? When we are justified and our sins are washed away, then that purity is then manifested practically in our lives throughout the time of our sanctification, though it's never brought to its perfection in this life. Because as long as we live in this life and we have the flesh, there remains spots of impurity within us. But what is Christ doing in us by his spirit from the time of our conversion until the time of our death? He's purifying us. He's sanctifying us. He's causing us to grow in righteousness and to manifest these things more and more in our life. And then ultimately, what will he do in the life to come when we see him face to face? We will be glorified. And all of our sin will be removed. The flesh will be completely destroyed. And a new body will be given in place of this old body. One that cannot sin. Then we will be perfectly righteous. And we will never sin again. And since that is what we will be in the life to come. What should we strive for in this present life? To live a godly life. Right? To overcome sin. To put away immorality. And to do that which is right. Right. This is because we belong to Christ. He is our faithful savior and he has died. He is to redeem us. Therefore, we should live for him. Next, the statement says he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. Jesus has fully paid for all my sins. All of the sins that I've committed in the past, all of the sins that I have committed in the present, and even all of the sins that I will commit in the future. Every single sin has been fully paid for by Christ. Without any assistance from me, without any assistance from any other man. It is not that Christ pays for our sins. And then also uses the saints and their merits to help pay for our sins. It is not that Christ pays for 99% of our sins. And then it's up to us to pay for the other 1%. But all of our sins are paid for fully by the blood of Christ. Therefore, can we have confidence that our sins are taken away? Yes, because of the blood of Christ. He is the one who has done it. And he's done it with his precious blood. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. says, knowing that you were redeemed, that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers... But with the precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is the only means by which our sins can be forgiven, that they can be paid for. So there's no amount of money that a man can present to God in order to redeem his soul. right? Because it is impossible to redeem a soul to pay for the sins of men with money, with the blood of animals. Right? This is what it teaches, and we'll see this in the book of Hebrews. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. It is impossible for them to do so. So even in the Old Testament, the sins of the people were not paid by the blood of animals. The sins of any man who will be in heaven one day were paid for by what? Only one source, and that is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That is the only payment that God will accept for the forgiveness of sins. And our sins have been paid for, fully paid for, by Christ. And does that bring great comfort in this life? Yes, that brings great comfort. We're not depending upon our own works, our own righteousness. Well, of course, we should live a godly life. But does my living of a godly life contribute to the blood of Christ? Does that make it where he will pay for more of my sins? No. All of my sins... Have been paid for by his blood. And I contribute nothing to that, only the work of Christ, his precious blood for the forgiveness of my sins. First John chapter one. First John chapter one verse seven. It says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And here, he's speaking of this as a present reality. It's not just that it has cleansed us of our past sins, but in this context, he's talking about the need of continual repentance, continual confession of sin. And Jesus's blood continues to wash us and to purify us from all of our sins that we will ever commit. And this will be the basis of our admittance and entrance into the kingdom of God is that Christ has paid for all of our sins. Then also 1 John 2, 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. He himself, being Christ Jesus, is the propitiation. Propitiation meaning the sacrifice of atonement. The sacrifice that is given, that is provided for our sins, to take our sins away. We know that because of our sin, we deserve to die. That death is necessary and the shedding of blood is necessary for the removal of sin. Right, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So someone's blood has to be shed for our sins to be forgiven. And whose blood is sufficient to bring that about? Well, it's not the blood of an animal. And it's not even the blood of another man. But only the blood of Jesus Christ. Only his blood is able to take away our sins. And that is why he is the propitiation for our sins. And also, this not only pays for our sins, but also frees us from all the power of the devil. John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verses 34 to 36. John eight thirty-four. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. There, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Right In our natural state, before our redemption, we are slaves of sin. Meaning we are under a tyranny, under a mastery by sin. Sin is. Death and Satan, those three hold a slavery over sinful men in their natural state. The devil exercises his tyranny over men through the power of temptation, and because of the flesh, temptation is always successful in sinful men. Right? They yield to temptation because of the power of the flesh and the lust of their flesh, and when they yield to temptation, they commit sin. And then when a man commits sin, it leads to what? It leads to death. So Satan, sin, and death, those all three always go together. And that was certainly true in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. Satan came and deceived the woman through temptation. She yielded to that temptation, which resulted in sin. And then the consequence of that sin was death. And now men are born, because of that sin, into a state of slavery, And the one who is in his sin, dead in his sin, is a slave to sin. He's under the condemnation of death and he's under the power of the devil. The devil is his master, is his ruler. He's under the prince of the power of the air. Well, Christ, through his blood, takes away sin, right? So that our sins no, no longer counted against us because of the shedding of his blood which means then the consequence of sin is taken away from us. We're no longer under the power of death. And then Christ redeems us, regenerates us. He puts his spirit within us so that now the devil cannot exercise the same control and power that he had over us before. Because who is there to resist him? The Holy Spirit. He gives us his spirit who is then able to resist and fight against the devil. Now, again, in this life, even in the believer with the spirit, he fluctuates between these two opinions. Sometimes the flesh gets the upper hand. And there are other times where the spirit, not because the spirit is weak, but because God is testing us and trying us and teaching us. But whenever we yield to the spirit, then the flesh will not gain the victory, will not gain the victory. But in the believer, that power has been broken. So that the believer does exercise some victory over sin. Because he's not under it as a slave anymore. Not under sin as a slave. Sin is like a noxious neighbor, right? Who bothers him, who plagues him, who harasses him. But he doesn't live in the home with him. And he does not have him chained anymore in that way. Then also Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews two fourteen to fifteen. Hebrews two fourteen it says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Here, he says, since the children share in flesh and blood. And here the children are the elect, the believers, right? The church, the redeemed, right? The children have flesh and blood, right? This is true of us. We have both a flesh and blood and we have a soul. This is what man is comprised of, what he is made up of. And since we have flesh and blood... And Jesus came to redeem sinful man, then what did he have to take on himself? He had to take on flesh and blood. He had to be made like us in every way except without sin. He had to assume and take on a human nature identical to ours. We have flesh and blood. He had flesh and blood. And the purpose of Jesus taking on our flesh and blood was so that he might offer his body as a sacrifice for our sins. So that he might die on the cross for our sins. And when Jesus did this, he rendered powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. He takes away that power that the devil exercises over sinful men because his power is in the guilt of their sin. The knowledge, the reality, the guilt of their sin and the judgment of God against them because of that sin. But when Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, that guilt is taken away, the judgment is taken away, the sin is atoned for, the payment has been made, so those people are no longer under the power of death, right, in terms of judgment, in terms of eternal death. He breaks the power of death that is over them, and who is the one who held and exercised this power of death over men? It is the devil, Right? They're subject to slavery all their lives by the devil because of the flesh and because of indwelling sin, because of being dead in their trespasses and sins, the devil has this tyranny and power over sinful men. And because of the guilt of their sin, they deserve to die, right? They deserve to go to hell and he wields this over sinful men. But when Christ pays for our sins that power of the devil is broken. He no longer has it and he cannot exercise it over the children of God anymore because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can the devil justly condemn us of sin anymore? He can't do it because the penalty, the payment has been made that satisfies the wrath of God according to the justice of God. So what condemnation can the devil bring up to us? What can he do before God in terms of accusing us that will stick? There's absolutely nothing. Because whatever sin he throws up into our face or that he brings up into the presence of God, is that sin outside of the blood of Christ? No, it's been paid by the blood of Christ. So it's already dealt with. It's already been atoned for. And he can no longer bring that before us. And this is also the way that, this is why in First Corinthians 13, it talks about love keeping no record of wrongs. God does not keep a record of our wrongs, right, in terms of our sins are forgiven. So should we be doing that toward one another? When a person repents of their sin, should we constantly remind them of that sin and throw it up into their face in order to condemn them and accuse them for the rest of their life? No, God doesn't do it to us. So we shouldn't do it toward one another. Here, the power of the devil is broken, and he is the one who is the accuser of the brethren. The devil is, and we don't want to be like the devil, so we shouldn't do that. Okay, next. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Here, he, Christ, preserves me in such a way he is the one who is watching over me, keeping me, guarding me, preserving me, so that nothing can happen to me. Not even a hair can fall from my head apart from the will of my heavenly Father. John chapter 6, John six thirty-nine to 40. John six thirty nine and 40, this is the will of him who sent me, that all of that he has given to me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. The will of God, the father, when he sent Christ is that Christ would come and that he would redeem the people that were given to him by the Father and that every single one of those people given to Christ, he would not lose one of them. Not one person that Jesus died for will go to hell. Every single one of them will be raised up and he will lose none of them, but he will preserve and protect every one of his sheep, right? It is not the case that Jesus has a flock of a hundred sheep, And he's only able to bring 98 of those 100 sheep into the kingdom of God. He tried to get all 100 in, but he did pretty good by bringing 98. How many of the 100 will Jesus bring into the kingdom of God? He will bring every single one of them. And he will not fail. So if we belong to Christ, is it possible for us to lose our salvation? Is it possible for us to be condemned? Is it possible... For us to go to hell, it's impossible. It will never happen. He, no sin, no power, no man, no spiritual enemy has the power to take us out of the hands of Christ. We don't even have the ability to do that to ourselves, right? This is how great Christ's love is for his people. John chapter 10. John 10, 27 through 30. John 10, 27. Says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Right here, the sheep of Christ hear his voice, he knows them, and they follow him. Whenever one of his sheep hear his voice, And this hearing is through the word of Christ, through the preaching of the word of Christ. The sheep hear the voice of Christ. And then what do they do? They follow him, right? They follow him. They believe in him. They repent of their sins and they seek to live a godly life according to his commandments. Christ gives them eternal life and they will never perish. And when does that eternal life begin in us? It begins at the moment of our conversion. For what is eternal life? But to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That is eternal life, is knowing God and knowing Christ whom he has sent. That knowledge begins in this life and then it will be brought to its consummation in the life to come. And that will be eternal life to us. Christ gives eternal life to us at the moment of our conversion and we will never perish. And is anyone able to take that away from us? Can anyone wrest us, wrestle us out of the hands of Christ? He says, No, it's impossible that anyone will snatch one of Christ's sheep out of his hand. And then he says, The Father who has given them to Christ is greater than all. Ultimately, the losing of none of his sheep depends upon the will of the Father. This is God the Father's will in Christ Jesus is that he would lose none of his sheep. Well, is anyone greater than God? Can anyone subvert, overthrow, overpower God so that what God desires to do, he's not able to do? It's impossible. If that's what God the Father wants to do, is to save the sheep of Christ, and that's why he sent him, is to bring this about then no one is able to thwart the will of God. The devil can't do it. The demons can't do it. Wicked men can't do it. We even can't do it to ourselves. He will raise us up in the last day. The father is greater than all. No one can snatch us out of the father's hand and no one can snatch us out of the hand of Christ. So we are held by these two who overpower everyone. The father and the son both hold us together in the palm of their hands. And while we're at it, who else, is with, who else is with them in this? The Holy Spirit of God. Father, Son, and Spirit all working in perfect harmony together to preserve and protect the sheep of Christ. So that not one of them will be lost. Does that bring comfort to us in the time of our sojourn? Does that bring comfort to us whenever we commit sin against God? To know that no matter what we have done, God will not discard us. He will not cast us away but he loves us and he will preserve us and protect us and he will bring us to repentance and continue his work within us 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 3 it says but the lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Here, the Lord is faithful. Now, are we perfectly faithful to him in this life? No. We are unfaithful to him. But is, is he unfaithful to us? No. He always remains faithful. He cannot and will not deny himself. And he will strengthen us and protect us from the evil one. According to his will. He will give us the strength. And the protection from the evil one so that Satan will not have ultimate victory over us. Now, God may from time to time permit him to have a temporary victory over us, such as was happened with Peter. Remember on the night of Jesus' betrayal, he told Peter that Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. And then Satan brought a very sore and harsh temptation upon Peter. And what did Peter do? Peter succumbed to that. Well, when Peter failed, was God unfaithful to Peter? Did God fail to give him strength and protect him from the evil one? No, God was not unfaithful. Peter was unfaithful. But God remained faithful and used that to purge his pride, to teach him humility, right? And then to reestablish him, right, later on. And this is what he did. So even in our sin, even when it appears that the world, the flesh, and the devil have a mastery over us, even then it's not outside of the control of God. God is over all of it. Even in our own sin, he's going to use it for our good, for our sanctification, to teach us humility, to teach us to rely and depend completely upon, upon him and what he's doing in us. First Peter chapter 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. First Peter 1 Peter 1.5 says, speaking of the believer, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Here, the believer, the, the sheep, the child of God, is protected by the power of God so that he will not and cannot fall away from Christ. Again, he may have his temporary doubts. He may have his momentary failings, but God will not allow one of his children to fall away. He protects them and preserves them in such a way. They are protected by the power of God through faith. God's power producing faith in them, and this faith gives them the victory over the world of flesh and the devil. And God maintains us in this state until the salvation that we will re- be receiving at the last time. Until our salvation is brought to its consummation in the life to come, we are protected by the power of God through the faith that he is working within us, through his spirit and through his powerful word. This is the way that God preserves us and protects us in this life. The word and the spirit being used by God to protect the child of God so that we will receive the ultimate end of our salvation, which is the redemption of our bodies. Okay, next. Matthew ten twenty nine 29 and through 31. Matthew 10, 29 to 31. Matthew 10, verses 29 to 31. It says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very he- hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Two sparrows are sold for a cent. These animals, these birds, are in terms of our perspective, the way we would value these animals, they're, they're not very valuable. Right? Two sparrows are sold for a cent. In relationship to other animals... A cow, a horse, a pig, a dog, whatever. A sparrow is a very uh, has a very little value attached to it, right? And everyone recognizes and notices this. Does anyone lose sleep when a a, a sparrow is laying there dead on the side of the road, on the sidewalk? No, no one does that. You don't even think about it. You just step over them and move on. Right or you kick them, give them to the cat. Okay, two sparrows are sold for a cent. Yet. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of God. Even these sparrows, which are so insignificant to us, they don't fall from the, to the ground apart from the will of God, apart from their father. So God is the one as their creator and preserver who is watching over them, caring for them, preserving and protecting them so that the life of the sparrow is in the hands of God. And he has determined the days of their sojourning on the earth. And that sparrow will not die a second before God has determined that that sparrow will fall to the ground. This is how meticulous God is ruling over this world. Now, if God is doing this for these lesser beings like a sparrow, then isn't he doing it for men who are created in the image of God, right? In terms of the relationship between a sparrow and a man, which one has greater value? Which one is more valuable in the sight of God, the sparrow or the man created in the image of God? Well, this is obvious to anyone looking at the world rationally and objectively that people are more valuable than sparrows. Though there are certain segments in our population who would argue differently, right? That animals are more important than people. But no one in their right mind would say this. And then in relationship to people, are we simply... Men, or if we are believers, are we not children of God, right? Then in relationship to mankind, there is a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And the righteous, the believer, is the very apple of the eye of God. So if God cares for sparrows, then he will care for men. And if God cares for all men, then certainly God will care for his own people, for his own children. So can we die outside of the will of God, apart from the will of God? Can any evil come upon us outside of the will of God? Can we get sick outside of the will of God? Are there things that are outside of God's control that can happen to us, evils that can come upon us that God is not able to control? Things that God wants to stop, he wants to keep them from happening, but God doesn't have the power to do so. This will never happen. So whatever happens to us in this life, it is under the control of God. And it is not outside of his will, but it is according to his will. And we will live according to the days that God has measured for us. We will not die a day in advance of that, and we will not live a day beyond that. God has numbered our days, and those days are fixed by him, and he will preserve and protect our life until he deems it over according to his will. And our life is in his hand. So should we be anxious about this present world? Should we be anxious about what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, the clothes we're going to wear, right? the house that we're going to live in, how we're going to pay for our bills? Now, certainly we should be thoughtful. We should work. We should be diligent. We should be wise with the things that God has given to us. But should we be anxious as if God does not know how to provide for his own people? Of course not. He has given to us his own son. Is there anything greater that God can give to prove his love for his people? His son is his most valuable possession. The blood of his son is his most valuable possession. He has given that for us. What more can God do to prove that he loves us, that he cares for us, that he is watching over us? So we should not doubt him. We should not be anxious about anything in this life. Not a hair can fall from our head to the ground apart from the will of God. Luke 21. Right. And in terms of our body, the hair, right, the hair is it's not a matter of life and death. Right. A single hair falling. We don't even know how many hairs we have on our head. But who does know it? God does. God does. And not one of those hairs can fall to the ground apart from his will. This is how much control and how much knowledge God has of every single aspect of our life. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he cares for us and he loves us. That should give great comfort to us in this life. Luke 21, 16 to 18. Luke 21, verse 16. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. Here even in the midst of great persecution. Great sorrow. Could you imagine the sorrow of being betrayed by your parents? Your parents handing you over to the authorities to be executed because you're a Christian? And yet even when this is happening... Who is in control of it? God is. And not a hair will be harmed. Not a hair of your head will perish apart from the will of God. So if that Christian is delivered over to death, and if that Christian is taken to the stake and burned at the stake, did God fail him? No. God did not fail him at all. Even if his body is burned in that way, God was still preserving and protecting him. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then what will God do to that body on the day of resurrection? He's going to resurrect it and transform it and give him a glorious body. And also give him rewards, right? He's going to reward him and honor him in the life to come as well. So is it going to turn out positive for that one that got burned at the stake? He can't lose. We cannot lose, right? It's impossible for us To be losers in Christ. We will always win. No matter what happens to us. Even in this present life. Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28. Here all things must work together for my salvation. God makes this to be so. He forces it. All things must work together for my salvation. Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God causes all things to work together for good. Now, does he do this for all people? No, but only for who? For those who love God. And the way that we love God is if we are called according to his purpose. When God calls us according to his purpose, he redeems us. With the result is, he causes us to love him. And now he's going to make everything work together for our good. Even our own sins, he causes us to work together for our good. Our sufferings, he causes us to work together for our good. Our sicknesses, he causes us to work together for our good. Our persecutors, he causes to work together for our good. Whatever happens to us in this life, God is using it for our good, for our benefit and making all of these things, even the hard things, even the evil things, even the sorrowful things, they are going to work together for our good. And God is the one who does this. He does it because he loves us and he cares for us. And he is concerned about our salvation our sanctification and bringing our salvation to its fulfillment on the day of Christ. Next, they say, therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. By his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life. The Holy Spirit is given to us as a pledge of what God has done in us, And what God will do for us in the life to come. He is the security deposit that God gives to us that is the guarantee, right? The earnest money, right? Whenever you enter into a contract and you give the earnest money to the person, the presence of that earnest money is to give them assurance, confidence that this person has entered into this contract and he's not going to break it, right? He will go through, he will follow through, and it will be brought to its completion, He's given me the earnest money, and then in due time, he will give me the rest of the money, right, according to the parameters of the contract. Well, this is what God has done with us. He has entered into a covenant with us, and that covenant, what God has promised to do for us is to give us eternal life. And the earnest money, the pledge that God gives to us in this life— because have any of us taken full possession of our salvation yet? Do any of us have a glorified body yet? None of us have that yet. We're still waiting for the full final realization of the salvation that God has begun in us. But how do we know that God will do it? Will God renege on what he said he will do? Will God go back and not do it? Of course not. We have it by the word of God, but God also gives to us a pledge, a security for us in this life to comfort us and to give us hope and assurance that what God has promised to do and what God has begun to do in us, he will bring to completion on the day of Christ. And who is the pledge, the security that God gives to us now? The Holy Spirit of God, who comes and dwells within us and is the evidence of the work of God in us, right? He is the one who is assuring us of eternal life. Romans eight fifteen to sixteen. Romans eight fifteen to sixteen it says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Here, we don't have a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. That's the spirit that we had in our natural state before our conversion. A spirit of slavery that was in fear of the judgment and condemnation of God. Well, God does not give that spirit to his children. Instead, he gives us a spirit of adoption. A spirit that testifies to us that we have been adopted into the family of God, that we are children of God. And he teaches us to cry out to God as our father. That God is our father and that we are his children. The slave does not have the right to cry out to God as his father. The slave of sin. But the children, they do have that right. To go and to cry out to their father. And who teaches us to cry out to God as our father? The Holy Spirit. And that's why he says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. That we are children of God. The spirit within us, the Holy Spirit of God, who resides within our hearts, he testifies in our very spirit, in our very soul, that we are children of God. And then when we are assured that we are children of God, it gives us confidence and boldness to go to God and to make our request to him. To boldly approach God, because will God deny his son? No way. No way that God will do that. Well, do we do this to our children? If our children have a legitimate need and they come to us, right? this is as Jesus says, which one of you, if your child is hungry, will give him a stone or give him a serpent? Do any of us do that to our children? No. Well, if we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the heavenly father give good gifts to his children? He will give good gifts to us. And when we have needs and we go to God and cry out to him for help in our time of need, he will not deny his own children because he has compassion for them. He has mercy for them. He will help us during our time of need. And that is what we are to learn to do in this life, to pray to God and to cry out to him during the time of our great need. Second Corinthians one. And do we not need God every day? So we should cry out to him every day. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 21 and 22. 21 and 22. Now he who established us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. Who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. The seal and pledge is the Holy Spirit. He seals us. God put his seal upon us, identifying and showing that we belong to him and the evidence that we belong to God is the Holy Spirit within us. And then the Holy Spirit is the pledge, the pledge that God has made that he will give to us the outcome of our salvation, which is the full redemption of our body. He will grant to us eternal life. Also chapter 5, Second Corinthians five verse five. Second Corinthians five five it says, Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. So there again, the Spirit is the pledge given by God to us. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed with him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Here, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, given as a pledge of our inheritance. Again, have we received that inheritance yet? No. But we have the pledge of that inheritance. That we will enter into the kingdom of God. And the Spirit is the pledge given to us that we will receive this great salvation. He will bring it to its completion. And then finally, Romans eight fourteen: The Spirit is not only a pledge of what God will do for us, what he has done for us and what he will do for us in the life to come. He also is causing us now to walk in the ways of God. The spirit makes us ready and willing to obey God from the heart, right? Not kicking and screaming, not hating obedience to God, but the spirit makes us willing and ready to obey God. Romans eight fourteen. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Here, those who are led by the Spirit of God. And how does the Spirit lead us? Well, He doesn't lead us to commit sin. He doesn't lead us to immorality, to wickedness, to righteousness. But rather, He leads us to walk according to the Spirit. And walking according to the Spirit is walking in truth and in righteousness. He writes the law of God on our hearts so that we have new desires and we want to obey God. Now, again, of course, in this life, that will not be perfected. There's always going to be this war that's going on in the person between the new man and the old man. But before our conversion, there was no war. It's just the old man. It's just the flesh dominating the person. But in the Christian, there is the war. There is the fight that is going on. So even when there is the presence of sin, we're still not doing the things that we want to do. We hate it, right? We don't want to do those things and we want to fight against them. And that's because of the work of the spirit. He's working in us, changing us so that we are ready and willing to obey God. We're going to stop there. I said we would do the first question, but the first one's a real, it's a real beef eater there. And, and that is a very good way to start this catechism that's a great question and answer to give hope and comfort assurance to God's people. And then to unfold that throughout the remainder of the confession, which is what that is the tactic or the track that they take throughout this. So we'll stop there next time. We'll do question two. And then we should be able to do questions three, four and five, because they're all pretty short in terms of just one or two scripture references per one, not, uh, 25 or 30, like there was in this one.